please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we continue our series in the Gospel of John, and this is following Jesus' miracle at Cana, turning the water to wine, as we last spoke before George was there. Um, It's the first Passover meal that Jesus is going to celebrate. And probably he celebrated three. And those three Passover meals in every way mark significant events in Jesus's life and ministry. And I think you'll see that the last Passover meal is perhaps the most significant one, which is the, the last supper that he has with his disciples. But here in the first one, you would say that he presents for us what are his essential priorities to ministry, life, teaching, his understanding of the world. And so I'm going to look at three of them today. The first, worship. The second, word. And then the third, which we'll look at next week, is will. So worship, word, and will. First, worship. I'm going to read again verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And if you can imagine Jesus, he's coming into the temple courts, and what he sees is not the worship of people, but he sees a marketplace. He sees all sorts of animals and people and tables and on these tables are all sorts of coinage from different parts of the Roman Empire. Because it's Passover, faithful Jews are coming once a year. They come to the temple to worship. And one of the significant aspects of the Passover meal is the sacrifice of an animal on behalf of your sins, as a substitute for your sins. So it would be quite difficult to take a sheep, a goat, a bull, some birds, whatever it might be, and to travel hundreds of miles across the Roman Empire into Jerusalem 
to sacrifice these animals on your behalf. I mean, it's very impractical, actually. And so sellers see this as an opportunity, and it's an important one. It's not just that it was meant to exploit or anything like that. It's just you need this. It's, it helps you and me or the Jew to go, and instead of bringing that animal, which might not make it all that way through that journey, to simply bring some money and to purchase an animal that you would go forth and sacrifice in the temple on your behalf as a substitute for your sins. So it's not so outlandish to think about. As well, in order to enter into the temple, Jews were required to pay a temple tax. That temple tax was going to be paid on the basis of a, a very special Jewish currency. And most Jews who were living in the outer reaches of the Roman Empire did not have that currency. So that what they would do is they would come to the temple. These money changers would have that Jewish currency, and they would have all sorts of other currencies. And if you handed in a certain amount of your currency, you could get that temple tax currency. And so again, a very practical solution to a genuine problem not necessarily inherently wrong either. So the big question is, what is wrong? What's the problem here? Why, why is Jesus so angry? The problem is actually not the fact that there was a service provided to these pilgrims, but it's the location of their service. Someone had allowed these people to come into the temple area and to set up their wares and their animals and their tables so that they could provide these services. And again, you might think, well, what's so wrong about that? When Jesus comes in and he looks at all of these different areas in this marketplace, he realizes that people have forgotten about the worship of the Lord because they're so fixated on this exchange, this marketplace. And alongside with this exchange can sometimes come exploitation. If you've any, ever exp, uh, exchanged currency, you know that what you see as the bank rate, if you go online and you were to try to get euros with US dollars, and you'll see in Google or different um, money exchange websites that there's a certain currency. So if you were to take that and think, okay, I'm going to get one5 one euros for one dollar and you were to go to a bank, you probably will not get 1.1. It's all dependent on fees and what the current rate is and what that bank charges. It's even more so when you're dealing with individuals or different people. I've been to places in Africa where we bring US dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars, and it's usually in like a little backpack. And we would meet up with uh, someone who is exchanging currency and they come with like a old paper bag. And I remember it was in Zimbabwean dollars and it was stacked. I mean, so for a thousand US dollars, you would literally get a whole backpack of currency. And so you're sort of in this corner, you know, and saying, okay, change here and do this. And that's not so uh, different than perhaps this type of context. And dependent on the person, the exchange is going to vary tremendously. And so if someone was going to be exploitive, take advantage of people, especially these pilgrims who are coming some, from so far away, many of them are not wealthy. 
Of course, the money changer can really take advantage of those people. Now, here's the question. Who let them in? Why are they even in the temple courts to begin with? And the answer has to be that it's the religious authorities. There's no way they could set up their tables and their cages in the temple area without the religious authorities allowing them to. And though the text doesn't say that they were corrupt in any way, but we do know that Eli's sons, they were corrupt. Eli, the priest. So it's not so outlandish to think that religious authorities cannot be corrupted in some way. And Samuel's sons, so they tended to take the offerings that people would bring and demand far more than what the Lord had apportioned for themselves and they would keep it for themselves in their greed. And truly, that was a sin, an abomination against the Lord. So this idea of religious leaders, again, we see it in our current context. We see it back in Scripture. It's not so outlandish to think that this might be happening here as well. They're taking a little cut, maybe, of this marketplace. And so what does Jesus do? According to verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So why would Jesus do such a thing? The Pharisees, they had power. But here they are standing back and watching as Jesus is doing this, right? I mean, he's literally taking all these money changers and he's creating a scene. You know, he creates a whip out of these really light reeds. When it says he made a whip of cords, I think we're thinking Indiana Jones. You know, he's like, like whipping everybody. But it is, what scholars say is that it's probably a very small reed, maybe a few tied together, and he's taking it. it. It's literally a wimpy whip. There's no way that he could have driven out all of the money changers with this small little thing. And yet here he is doing that. This 30-year-old, probably not so big man, coming around with this wimpy whip, driving everyone away, and no one's doing anything about it. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. And you, you can sort of imagine that sense of authority that he has. In fact, we see throughout the Gospels, people say, how does he preach with such authority? When you stand in the presence of the Lord, you can't help but be mesmerized by how this man who had no education could stand before people who are highly educated, very powerful, have much authority, and still reign over them with authority. So the Pharisees are just standing back. They don't know what to do. This scene is being created. And what matters to Jesus is the fact that these rituals, these traditions, are above the heart behind those rituals and traditions. Again, the act of changing money and going about bringing animals in and of itself is not wrong, but it's the heart behind it. All they cared about was the money, the exchange, the marketplace, convenience, rather than what was supposed to be central, which is the worship of God, the sincere worship of God. In the Old Testament, there are so many instances where we see this type of empty worship that God condemns. In Amos chapter 5, verses 20 through 23, 
the Lord says to Amos and to the people of Israel, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God does not care about our songs inherently or our coming on Sundays. What he cares about is the heart behind the song. What is deep in your, in your will, in your being. And there are ways that we are no different than the money changers. I could give you a number of examples. I'm going to give you two. One is, anytime the church yields its authority to something or someone else, we become a money changer as a church. We are empty in our worship. It's the emptying of sincere worship and placing above it something external that says, this is our worship, but it really isn't. Religious leaders they yielded the house of the Lord for a marketplace. And so people slowly made something other than the worship of God their greatest priority, even though it was an important priority because God set up the sacrificial system. If you read the first five books of the Bible, this is the Lord's command. At Passover, you are supposed to do these things. But what God cares about is ultimately not sheep and goats. As Hebrews tells us, that's only a symbol. What he wants is what those sheep and goats represent, which is, that's money for you. That's your wealth, your resources. And so when you offer that up as Jews, you're giving of your heart. You're saying, Lord, I trust you with my life and my income, all that I have, my family, it's all yours. And so this sheep, this goat that I'm sacrificing is a picture of my brokenness, my sin, my priorities, my life. And I'm just saying, it's yours, Lord. It's not mine. So that's what God cares about. He doesn't care about the sheep and the goats. But that is exactly what the Pharisees are so fixated on, is the act matters much more than the heart. And God says, no, the heart matters more than the act. Because if your heart is changed, your act will happen. The action, the work will take place. And so Jesus' priority is always the sincere worship of God with your heart. And like Amos, Jesus is declaring to the money changers, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and to all the Jews and to all of us, he's saying, my greatest priority is your heart. Everything else is secondary. For example, the church's primary role is not to preach against gay marriage. I don't know if you know that. It's not to preach for uh, racial equity. It's not to preach against COVID and its implications or Asian hate or abortion. And I think for many of us, we tend to think, isn't that an important role of the church? Shouldn't that be preached at the pulpit and talked about and wrestled with and considered? Yes, if it's in the right order. But if our fixation is on the issue at hand and not the gospel of Christ, we will fixate on that issue and lose the gospel of Christ. We will be more of a humanitarian organization than we are a church. And 
when that happens, the power of the gospel is completely emptied out. We lose its power. And there is no power greater in this world and no hope for peace greater in this world than the gospel of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I've quoted many times, he was a pastor of uh, Westminster Chapel in the 1950s. At that time period, communism was sweeping across all of Europe, as you might know of Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech. So it's taking over, and the fear that that was creating, those who lived in the 60s know, especially if they were in school, that the atomic bomb and the possibility of nuclear destruction of the whole world was a reality. And so people were living in dread and fear, especially of the spread of communism. And he was preaching to a church that was living in fear and very close to to the Soviet Union and to the whole communistic sphere. So many people were constantly coming up to him saying, aren't you going to preach about communism? Aren't you going to preach against Stalin? Aren't you going to talk about... And when he addresses this topic... His whole point is to say, there's a place to preach about against communism and atheism, but if you think communism is the greatest problem of the world, you miss out on the whole message of the gospel of Christ. The most important influence in the world is Christ himself. It is not communism, atheism, any type of system that this world has. And the devil's greatest tactic is to cause us to exalt every other topic other than Christ. That's our inherent tendency, is to want to think that way. But when we do that, we lose its power. Here's the question that he raises, and I absolutely agree with is, why is Europe today so weak spiritually? Because the church aligned itself so tightly to the state that it it created a whole system where you thought that whatever the, the state taught and which sort of coincided with the church is exactly what needed to be addressed in the church. But by doing so, it weakened the witness of the church. One example of this is colonialism. So in the 1800s, because the church was so aligned with the state, when the British Empire or the Dutch Empire would go, or the Belgians, they would go into places like Africa, and they'd colonize different parts of Africa. And then the church would go alongside with them and say, all right, let's make them all Christians too. They're not making people in Africa Christians. They're making them colonial subjects based on what they're teaching in the church. But the alignment of the two has robbed the gospel of its power. And so now every time people in Africa today who are thrown off colonial rule still think about the Dutch Reformed Church as an evil entity of the Dutch Empire. The British Church as as an evil entity of the British Empire. It's so closely tightly knitted together that there's a, a, a darkness when it comes to thinking about the church. See, it wasn't about Jesus. It was about a government, a church. And we are so tempted to do the same thing. The church is not a think tank. It is not an NGO. It is not a homeless shelter. Can the church provide for the homeless? Absolutely. 
Is there a need for ministries like SF City Impact and Shepherd's Gate and Hands at Work Africa? Yes. And as you know, we're involved in all of those places. And we should be. We must be. But we don't do that because we think that they are and what the services that they're providing is of utmost importance to us. Because that will only last for a short period of time if it is without Christ. Eventually, that heart, the heart of wanting to care for the poor, it fades away. What I really appreciate about Hands at Work, actually, and with George, is that when you go there to Africa, and you go inside these villages, right, and you go see literally the poorest of the poor, where people have nothing, and they say, you talk to someone, they say, my roof has a lot of water pouring in. So you know what the first instinct is of any international volunteer who comes? Take out their wallet. Give money. And while that is important, the problem is that when you, once you start giving out that money, you've already created now this system of, okay, I am here to give out money. Money is the answer to everything. And that money, when you're gone, it might fix that roof, but it will not feed them for a life. Unless you're willing to give constantly to that person, you're only providing a small little window of relief. And that's empty. It will never change that person. But what Hands at Work and what George does is that they, their whole system of caring for people is rooted on the idea that Christ is the answer and you can actually be content even if you are the poorest of the poor. And in many ways, they're richer than us. Until they have that mindset, they have a poor mindset because we have a poor mindset, which is that, oh, money is the answer to life's problems. If we as a church think that way, we lose the power of the gospel. The gospel saves lives eternally. Money helps someone maybe for at max a few decades. Whether you believe it or not, it, in the end, you just have to be a mathematician. If you say, and you don't have to be a mathematician, I stink at math, but I do know that infinity is greater than 90 years. And I do know that if this is true, then yes, feeding the poor is wonderful and great, but it only lasts for a short period of time. It cannot change the soul. And here's the problem with thinking of advocacy as our fundamental mission as a church, is that we have two groups. During COVID, I remember, I'll get an anonymous email. Got an anonymous email saying, when you preach, you are harming us because you're not wearing a mask and all the fomites are, well, I think it's fomites, I should ask Thomas this question. All the fomites are spreading to all of us and you're actually doing harm against us. So I got that anonymous email and never shared that. But then at the flip side, I would get a, everyone who's wearing a mask has no faith. And both of these emails were coming to me at exactly the same time. And then when, uh, George Floyd happens. Are you going to speak about George Floyd and all the injustices? And then when Asian hate happens, are you going to speak about Asian hate and all the hate that's happening? And then this tornado that comes and this war that comes. And if I did that and we spent this whole time talking about those subjects, you're going to speak about gay marriage. You're going to speak about this topic and that topic. 
I pretty much guarantee you maybe five of you will be left. Eventually, this church will close down because those issues, first of all, you have two politically aligned sides. I've been asked, who are you voting for? You're not voting for Trump, are you? You're not voting for Biden, are you? And I've been asked both of those questions on the same day. You're not voting for Biden. You're not voting for Trump. Imagine if this pulpit was used to address those things. It would be horrific. You know, one thing would be sure, there would be no Christ. It would be a political spectrum, a forum of events. And Jesus, he comes and he sweeps it all away. He says, you have missed the point of why God's people gather together. It is not for pragmatism, to help me with my family. Does the church, does the gospel influence how you are married and how you parent? How you think about education? Yes, absolutely. But the point of the gospel is not to help you with your family. And when you come to Jesus thinking, I need help, and you come to the church, I need help with my family, you won't actually know how to have a godly marriage be able to support your family. But if you're changed by Christ, guaranteed it will impact the way you treat your wife and your husband and how you parent, how you think about life and education. When Jesus sweeps away the merchants because they are diluting the gospel message, they're diluting the glory of God, he does so by reform by changing the inside. You know, he could have gone to the government offices, the Roman, local Roman Empire government offices, and thrown away all the booths there and the tables. He could have gone outside to the mall out there and said, oh, all of you sellers and caring for greed and all these things. But he does it inside the temple because he knows that if we want to see radical transformation of the world, it starts in the church. It starts here. And it doesn't start by us having this narrative that we have to be politically minded. We have to think about abortion. We have to think about gay marriage. We have to think about COVID. We have to think about racism. If, if it starts here with we have to think about Christ, then all those things will be taken care of. Some of you know the name William, Wil William Wilberforce. He was instrumental. He was literally spend, spending 20 years in British Parliament to overturn the slave trade. And through his constant advocacy and efforts, the slave trade was abolished and very early on, way before America. But he didn't do it within the church. He did it as a believer who was changed and transformed by the gospel, looked out and said, I have to make a difference in this world. And he didn't guilt people in saying, why aren't you doing anything about the slave trade? He just said, I'm gonna make a difference because of my love for Christ. And that's how you know someone is truly transformed by the gospel, is that they do act upon it and they don't guilt everyone into it and they don't judge everyone because they say, well, you're not caring for the poor. You're not, you're not out there. And again, it's one of the things that I love about, 
you know, and I mention hands at work and, and George a lot because I, I rarely see that actually in missions organizations and people. You know, since I've known him from 2005 to today, he's never asked me or our church for money. Like he's never came up to me and said, Sam, would you give money to this? Or would you give me money? Not a single time. And his answer has always been, I trust the Lord. He's always going to provide, and he does. And so, and it's amazing, he really does. It's, it's how the Lord changes us. And so, if you are volunteering at SF City Impact, and some of you are, praise God that you are. May it be because you've been transformed by Christ, and so you're going out, but you're not also saying, oh, all of you who aren't going you're just not godly. You don't really love Jesus, do you? It's instead, we need to inspire through Christ. Get people to know Christ. Get people to see what he has done for you. Tell your story, your story. And as you do, you will see people changed. And when you see people changed, they want to go and serve. They delight to do so. It's not easy but it's just a great opportunity. It shows us that it's not going to be our works. It's going to be who we worship. And that happens. And every time we don't do that, the Lord comes and he turns over the tables of your heart. Jesus also overturns our empty religion. Not just the church as a corporate body, but also individually. And some areas where we see this playing out is communion, baptism, these sacraments. You might think we're being legalistic when we say um, during communion, the, whoever's leading it says they fence the table, meaning they say, if you have not turned to Christ, please do not take communion because then it's an empty ritual. And according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, you drink judgment on yourself. Or if you're getting baptized, don't get baptized because everyone else is doing it. You know, if you're a, a teenager or if you're a parent, I really strongly, if you're, especially if you're parents, do not get your kids baptized because they should, it's the time to do it now because they're 17 years old. And so therefore, what's wrong with you? That's not how it's supposed to work. That's empty religion, that's tradition, that's ritual. And the Lord will say, it's gonna come and sweep over your table and say, I don't want that. You know, God doesn't care about our empty rituals. Baptism is a symbol of a reality. If there's no reality, meaning born again, I am a sinner, I am saved, I am, I've been bought by the blood of Christ, I'm set free. And so therefore, I'm adopted as a son or daughter, and I want to live my life for him. And baptism, I want to be baptized. Parents, you shouldn't have to tell your kids, don't you want to be baptized? There's a class. Shouldn't you go take that class? It's not a rite of passage, baptism. It's not a bar mitzvah. It's who you are. And so if you force a kid to be baptized because it's your tradition, then you're in danger of the Lord coming and sweeping and turning over your table and saying, I don't care about that. Communion, don't take communion unless you're really transformed by the gospel. Like you, you're born again, you're saved. 
if you take communion and you're not born again, then it's an empty ritual. And so these are things that are happening all around us. God hates our feasts, our solemn assemblies. He, he doesn't want simply us to do rituals without having a heart to them. And we drink judgment on ourselves and we actually even attempt to deceive God if that were possible. Ananias and Sapphira, remember in Acts, what happened to them? They were trying to deceive God with empty rituals. And the Lord said, I'm gonna strike you down today, right now. Revelation 6.16 describes people who disregarded Jesus and his whip. They're crying out saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. There is a wrath that is to come for those who worship the Lord with simply their lips, but their hearts are far from them. You and I, we are not saved because we have quiet time every day or because you take communion. You're not saved because you take communion. In fact, again, it can work against you if you are not in Christ. If you are baptized and if you're, again, I want people to be baptized. If you're a believer of Christ, be baptized. But if you are not a believer of Christ or you're questioning or not sure, do not be baptized. Serving at Hands or at SF City Impact or at Shepherd's Gate, don't do it because you think that by doing it, it's gonna make you more righteous that God's gonna accept you more and love you more. You'll be a better Christian for it. That's not why we do those things. I want you, we want you to serve in every possible way as possible. But may it be because you love Jesus and because you know what he has done for you. And by the way, if you don't know Christ, that service, it's always limited. You just see that person eventually petering out because it's hard to keep it up out of your own humanitarian will. Humanitarianism, it only gets you so far. Eventually it grows tiring, you can't persevere through it. But when you are in Christ, there are, everyone goes through those hard times in serving. But if you remember, Jesus, you, you gave me everything. This is a small little act, so I'm not paying you back at all. It's just a representative of my heart. And so I'm having a hard time following through, but may I press forward. And the gospel is what drives you forward to perseverance, faithfulness. It's not humanitarianism that always falls short or it's empty in, in many different ways. Prayer is empty without the gospel. You can pray 10 hours a day and still say empty words. Again, God hates our feasts, our solemn assemblies, our lip service. And so... The Lord is saying, I'm gonna turn all of those things over in your heart. And when he turns the tables, he wants us to see that we cannot know him by doing these things. So next we look at the word in verses 18 through 22. How would he turn the tables so that we could be forever accepted and righteous and loved? Listen to what Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? 
but he's speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem and you go to the Temple Mount and there's the wall, you can actually go, the Wailing Wall, there's on the one side, but you can actually go on the inner side and there are these gigantic stones. I mean, it's supposedly thousands of pounds per stone. And remember, this is a time where there's no machinery. It really is a marvel to think about how these stones got built, piled on each other at such a high level. And so Jesus is, I'm telling you, when you if you would ever see it, you, it changes the way you see this verse. Because Jesus is saying, destroy, I'm going to build it up in three days. And they're like, took us 46 years to build it. 46 years. You know, it took us to build this church two years. And it was the longest two years of my life. I got a lot more gray hair because of it and less hair. More gray, less hair. Two years, 46 years to build the temple. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to destroy it. And they're like, what are you? There's no way you can do this. But verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. This word temple is all throughout the Bible. You know where the temple starts? It actually starts in Genesis 1.1. In the, be- I'm sorry, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the temple starts in those first three words, in the beginning. God, four words, in the beginning, God. Meaning, God himself is the temple. Before there was anything, there was God in his temple. Meaning, God is the temple. The temple is the idea of the presence of God. So before anything existed, there was a temple. And then what God does is he creates a temple called the garden. It's basically the place where God would dwell with his people, Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve, and moving forward, they would completely reject God. And God would bring about judgment through a flood. And God would build, through this man, a temple. His name is Noah. Happened to be called an, another word for that temple is called an ark. But basically, it's the place where God dwelt with his people. And then moving forward after that, God promises, I'm not going to destroy the world again. This way, even if they rebel, and they do rebel. And so then God calls his people back again through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then through Jacob, he has 12 sons, and they become Israel. His name is Israel, God's people. And God brings them through, delivers them, and he says, I'm going to bring you through. I'm going to dwell with you. And he dwells in a temple called a tent, a meeting, or a tabernacle. For 40 years, God is dwelling a temple with them. And then he goes through the desert, and then finally he breaks in, it goes into the promised land, and God says, through eventually different servants, through David, through Solomon, who say, we want to build a temple for you, God. And God says, I don't need a temple. And they say, but we want to do this anyway. And they say, and God says, okay, I love your heart. So yes, build this temple, because that's where I'm going to meet you. I'm going to be with my people. So they build this temple. But again, as they build the temple, the people reject him over the years. And so we have the rest of the Bible of a God builds a temple. He dwells with them. They reject him. And then God says, I don't need a temple. I don't care about a temple. Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. I don't need a temple. 
I am a temple. And so then all that goes, and then suddenly there's John the Baptist comes along and says, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes along and he's saying, I'm gonna tear down this temple that Herod built and it's just a building and now it's empty religion, traditionalism and no heart, no sincere heart of worship and God, and God through Jesus says, I'm gonna build a temple again and it's me. Three days, it will be broken and in three days raised up again. That temple will be made anew and then that temple is going to last now in us. Because as George spoke last week, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The temple of God is me and you as a believer of Christ, as the church. We are God, where God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus says. Forever and ever, Jesus through his work resides with us, is our temple. He's where the temple, he dwells with us forever and ever. And Revelation brings us to the very end where there is no end. He's always dwelling. In fact, Revelation chapter 21 says, God is there, his glory. There's no need for light. His presence never fades. Do you see that thread? The temple thread, it just goes all throughout. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm gonna be raised from the dead, and disciples remembered it. They believed scripture. And this is exactly what God promises to us. And so the whole point of it is, is how can you have God's presence? It's not going to be anything we do. Nothing we do for him is going to make it so that we're now worthy for God to dwell with us. No, it's what Christ has done for us. And that's what is going to change the world, change our marriages, change our parenting, change our hearts, change society. It is not going to be trying to focus on every single, and there's going to be so many more that come along the way. Individually, societally, we have to focus on Christ. He is what changes the world. Christmas reminds us of this truth. Communion reminds us of this truth. Take our eyes away from what communion represents and we will lose sight of the Lord and our hearts will grow dry. But remember, this bread and wine is only a symbol of what is true. These plants, that tree, this season, it's only a symbol, a sign of what is true. Christ dwells in us. But it came at a cost. May you never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be not bamboozled as we so easily are by Satan. I think so often we get caught up in the weeds in life, individually, as a family, in marriage, societally. We want all of these answers to life's problems. But you already gave us the ultimate answer. And if we only truly believed it, we would see radical transformation in not just ourselves, but in those around us. Our sphere of influence would change. I'm thankful for someone like George, oh Lord, last week who shares dramatic stories. But I really believe that it's because he simply believes you, just like Nathaniel, a man without guile, 
may we be a people who actually believes that Jesus, you gave your life for us and that is what people need to hear most. And may it begin with me. May it change our hearts to know you, to love you, to delight in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.